What strategy do we have as a church to bring the good news of Jesus Christ, the one we've just been singing of, to this city of Edinburgh? Edinburgh has many church buildings that once used to be full Sunday by Sunday. Stories of how people used to queue up on the streets in order just to get in to churches where the Bible was being taught. Now, that's not the spiritual climate of Edinburgh today, is it? That's not where we're at. Uh, Congregations are dwindling and amalgamating. Buildings are going up for sale. Uh, I was informed by the presenters of the Today program as I shaved yesterday morning that uh, with the decline of Christianity in the UK, this is the, I think it was John Humphreys or one of them said this, with the decline of Christianity today, uh, we are seeing the rise of other religions and uh, the announcement that uh, Druidry, the pagan faith of Druids, is now to be classed as a religion by the Charity Commission. Wow. Back into the Dark Ages. Um, and in our own city, we have the huge... Beltane Fire Festival that's uh, taken quite seriously by some. How will the gospel of Jesus Christ grow in its influence and gain ground in a post-Christian, partly secular, partly pagan society like Edinburgh? We have a message about Christ Jesus, our Savior, that that needs to be preached and and heard so that people without hope can can really know God and have the certainty of, of of eternal life. So how can we, in this city of Edinburgh, how can we engage in it so that we see it change and transformed with the gospel? Instead of seeing a, a time of decline, how can we see it make progress and advance? Now Paul's letter to Titus would give us a very surprising answer to that question. Uh, Paul is saying here, in that passage that was read by uh, earlier, that we need to have godly elders with a grip on God's truth. That this is a key part of our strategy to see a city like Edinburgh, one for Christ. We need to have godly elders with a grip on God's truth. Now, I think that's probably quite a surprising answer this morning. My guess is that um, when we start talking about uh, church leadership structures, about elders and deacons, there are many of you that would want to instantly just start going, oh, it's not for me. How dull. But as far as the Apostle Paul was concerned, the work of the spread of the gospel in a city was not completed, was not done, until there were elders appointed in every church, until there were churches led by godly elders with a grip on the truth. And the reason for that is uh, my first point today, that elders secure gospel ministry in a city. Elders secure gospel ministry in a city. Have a look again at Titus 1 verse 5. Please open your Bibles if you close them to page 1198, 1198, and look at Titus chapter 1 verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. These churches in Crete were having problems because of a lack of spiritual leadership. Um, We're going to see more of this next week. uh, That false teachers 
were out there in Crete and they were teaching what should not be taught, as it says in Titus, and they were harming churches and they were harming households. And without spiritual leadership in congregations, churches are susceptible to false teaching. Churches are susceptible to false teachers. There is the danger without proper spiritual leadership in a church, there is a danger that people start drifting away from the gospel. And that drift can get to such an extent that they can end up as a church losing the gospel altogether. And my friends, the evidence of that is in this city, in the many empty buildings that were once full and packed Sunday by Sunday. And so it's important, it's vital, according to the apostle uh, Paul, that uh, as they took the gospel into new territories, as they took the gospel into new cities, that the job wasn't done until spiritual leadership was in place. And Paul had to move on. Uh, It's interesting here to me that uh, the work of building congregations isn't done easily, isn't done overnight. It takes time. And Paul had to move on to other territories. And so he leaves Titus to finish the job. In fact, he, he furnishes Titus with this very letter. Not to, he's, he's, not, he's not doing this to chide Titus and say, Come on, Titus, you're getting slack. Get on with it. You know what you were supposed to do. No, that's not the purpose of the letter. The purpose of the letter is that Titus is going to turn up to these churches and uh, say, Hey, we need to appoint um, godly leaders here. Uh, and, uh, and they're going to say, Well, who are you? And he say, Well, hey, actually, uh, do you remember me? I, I hang out with the Apostle Paul. I've got a letter from him. And it was there to kind of strengthen Titus in this important job. Titus was supposed to finish the job of of, of appointing these uh, men in the churches in Crete. Churches avoid this teaching at their peril. This command, this direction comes straight from the Apostle Paul. And I think it makes it um, binding on churches that want to be apostolic gospel churches today. This is a very relevant passage for us right now. If you're visiting, you might not know, but we're in a process of uh, seeking to elect new elders. Uh, historically, uh, at Charlotte, every five years, uh, we, uh, we, we go through a process of appointing new uh, men to lead. And uh, so this afternoon, we'll be meeting for our fourth of eight sessions uh, of a training course with about 21 men. And uh, we're looking at what the Bible has to say about biblical eldership. We're looking at doctrines together. We're talking about what it is to shepherd God's people. And so uh, we need to be crystal clear as a congregation about the importance of appointing the right sort of men to this eldership position. Members of this congregation will play an active part in the election of these men with a vote come November. And right now, uh, we, we, uh, we gave you, uh, a few months ago, we gave you a, uh, a document with the name of all the elders, except for one secret elder who didn't get in there, Graham Watson. So you have to add Graham to the list. And uh, the reason for that is to ask you to pray for these men as they consider this thing of becoming an elder. And uh, we, we, we are asking you, as you pray, to, uh, if you've got any concerns about any of these men to come and speak to them and come and speak to um, 
us as elders. Or if you've got guys you particularly want to commend and you, and, and you read their name and you're praying with joy, you say, oh yes, we must have this person. We'd love to hear that. This is a time of hearing from the congregation in this process of evaluation. So this is a very important text for us right now. We need to be crystal clear of the importance of this for our church and for this city. For this city. Many once vibrant congregations have been damaged and have even disappeared because they appointed ministers who no longer really held to the teaching of the Bible. Who began to fumble the the gospel. Now how did these men get appointed? These men got appointed because church elders and ministry leaders in the congregation had lacked clarity and lacked discernment on doctrine and the gospel and had allowed these men to have a pulpit and allow these men to teach what was not according to the truth and gradually have a toxic effect on a congregation. This is why it's so important. It's critical. If we want to see the gospel advance, we need many more churches with sound, clear elders leading those churches so that the gospel doesn't go into decline but goes on the advance. That's why we're looking at the book of Titus together. And so let's consider two vital qualifications for spiritual leadership. Uh, My second point, firstly this, elders must be godly. Elders must be godly. Look at uh, the way uh, this key word keeps popping up. Look at verse 6. An elder must be blameless. Look at verse 7. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. It's kind of a big underline, isn't it? He must be blameless. Now, what does it mean to be blameless? Uh, Let's just say this. It does not mean sinless. It does not mean sinless. There would be nobody leading any church if it was about a state of sinless perfection. Uh, John Calvin, uh, in his commentary, says this, This does not mean free from every fault, for no man could ever be found, but one marred with no disgrace that could diminish his authority and unblemished reputation. See, this is not a requirement for perfection, but it's a reasonable requirement about a person's reputation before others. That's what's being talked about. Blamelessness as others look in on that person's life. Uh, The elder or the uh, overseer, as he's referred to in verse 7, it's the same person, gets entrusted with God's work, it says in verse 7. And underneath that, that, that English uh, translation of God's work is this idea of being a steward of God's household. Uh, now, uh, when, when they used to have slaves in the first century, uh, the, the, person, the slave who was most trusted, uh, could most be relied upon, was kind of made overall head slave, as it were, steward over the household for his master. And his job, really, uh, he didn't possess the house. It it wasn't his stuff. But he was trusted to take care of the master's house for him. And you need a reliable person to do that, don't you? I mean, it happens today. Um, We, in life, if we're going to trust people with something precious, we want trustworthy people, don't we? 
I mean, just uh, if you received an inheritance uh, this week for £100,000, would you employ a financial advisor who had just got out of prison for theft and embezzlement? I don't think you would. You know, you might get a little bit icky-picky about that. You know, you're a marvelous chap, and uh, I'm sure you've changed. But, uh, no, you want to pick somebody who's blameless with regard to their financial prudence, don't you? If you're going out for a night uh, with your wife and uh, you've got children at home, would you really ask a babysitter to come and take care of your children who had a reputation for getting drunk or stoned most nights of the week? My guess is you would not. Uh, This is just a very simple principle, isn't it? And what we're talking about here is that the elder, the, the overseer or bishop, it's the same term, is, is in charge, is a steward over God's household. He is to care for God's family, his precious blood-bought sheep. So how much more is it important that the men who are in that position of stewardship, of leadership in the congregation, should be blameless in regards to their reputation to those outside? And this godly blamelessness is spelt out Uh, in more detail in these verses, isn't it? In verse 6, it must be evident in their marriage and family life. Here's the the step, the the most important thing, the top of the list. Verse 6, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife. And that phrase, husband of but one wife, in the original language, literally, one woman man. Uh, This person must be a one woman man. Now, I don't think this means that a man must be married or have at least two children to be an elder. Jesus was not married. The Apostle Paul was not married. You could read 1 Corinthians 7. He actually argues that you can be more devoted to the work of Christ if you're single. So it would be strange to preclude someone uh, if they were single from that role. But it is talking about the sort of man who, if he is married, is sexually faithful to his wife. He's the sort of man that other women feel safe to be around. And I think this rules out, um, in a sense, you could be a married man and have a terrible reputation at work, couldn't you, of being a flirt, of being, don't, don't ever be alone with that guy. Well, that's not the sort of person we want shepherding God's flock. We want someone who's a one-woman man, someone who uh, is living in purity and in sexual fidelity to his wife. And I think this rules out uh, those who engage in sexual activity of whatever kind outside marriage. It's extraordinary to me that uh, we have this controversy right now over the appointment of Scott Rennie to be a Church of Scotland minister in Aberdeen. The controversy kind of rose to a surface at the General Assembly in 2009. And there would have been a time where the debate would have been whether you could have a man who had divorced his wife as, an, as a minister. That would have been the debate. Could we really appoint a man who had divorced his wife to be a minister of God's people? But the debate is not over that. The debate is, can we take a man who divorced his wife and now is an openly practicing homosexual within the denomination? Can we appoint that man? 
And there will be a huge debate this coming assembly next summer. Please pray for the Church of Scotland. Pray for uh, godly men involved in that debate. My friends, to even be having a debate on this topic shows how far people have moved from the clear teaching of Scripture. And do you know what grieves me as I hear this debate? I, my, heart, my heart is grieved for those men and women who experience same-sex attraction but who are pursuing godly lives of celibacy and obedience to Christ. And how awfully confusing it must be for such individuals when a man is being held up and saying, no, this lifestyle is good and holy and wholesome and, and a model to the congregation. My friends, what madness of times we live in as there's this huge church decline and we are walking away from the clear ethical teaching of God's words. Let me point you back to Titus chapter 1, verse 1. This is a theme that goes throughout the book, and Andy brought it out really well, where he talks about, Paul talks about his ministry, that he labors as an apostle for the faith of God's elect, and here's the phrase, and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. These are the twin key elements of this book, that there is a knowledge of God that leads to godliness. My friends, if there is no godliness then you cannot claim to have a true knowledge of God. These two things are inextricably bound together. And so it is vital, it is crucial that we have elders over congregations who are godly, that their lives fit with the wonderful truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A failure to have that is disaster. And not only is it talking about his married life, it's his family life, isn't it? Verse 6, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. What is this talking about? This does not mean if your, if your toddler has a tantrum, you cannot be an elder. No, this is normal uh, child behavior best thing to do is you know in a supermarket if your child behaves like that you just say loudly you wait till I tell your mother when we get home that's the best thing to say what does it mean what does it mean by believe a man whose children believe does this mean a man can only be an elder if all his children are born again believers now I don't think this is this is what it means fathers cannot ensure that their children become genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that's that is a work of God's Holy Spirit making someone born again And even some of the best of parents have experienced the pain of their children rejecting their faith. Now, I think that word believe could could simply and more likely be translated faithful or dutiful. Uh, It's about the management of his family that's being considered here. Are his children, who are still living at home with him, out of control... Uh, pursuing a debauched life of wild disobedience, displaying contempt for their father's leadership. Well, if that is the case, then we would have to tactfully say, we don't think that it's appropriate for you to be an elder of the congregation. This would disqualify you from managing God's household. If your household is in complete disarray and a mess, this really would disqualify you from managing God's household. And that's just common sense, isn't it? And then Paul gives a list of five vices that would bring reproach on a man's blamelessness, on a man's um, reputation. Five characteristics that would make him blameworthy, I guess. Uh, Firstly, 
in verse 7, uh, overbearing. Or it could be translated, arrogance. Uh, we don't want men who are arrogant leading God's people. Someone who wants their own way all the time. Somebody who is just a dominating personality. This is just not appropriate for God's people. Quick-tempered. Have you met someone who just often just seems to be angry? Have you met people like that? You know, I think we all have. They always look like they're nearly at the end of their fuse, who are ready to snap with a fierce look on their face all the time, are ready to explode, get red-faced and start shouting. Not good in an elder. Rough rule of thumb, not good mostly in anything in life, really. Unless it's worldwide wrestling, perhaps. Uh, that, that might be great there. Arr! That's good for that. But out of the wrestling ring, not good in most areas, especially eldership. Given to drunkenness. You don't want a spiritual leader with a drink problem. Someone who always seems to need a drink. And I guess that would be just as true with drugs as well as with alcohol. Violence. You don't want a shepherd of God's flock that is violent. Someone who doesn't know how to control their aggression. Uh, someone who treats others roughly. You don't want that. You know, as elders, the truth is that at times you deal with tense and difficult conversations. And it doesn't help if you're worrying about whether your fellow elder is going to come over the table with his fist flying. It doesn't help. Pursuing dishonest gain. You know, in, in a sense, we, 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 we need men who model godly contentment. You don't want an elder or a pastor who's in it for the money, who's looking for ways to squeeze and fleece the flock. Uh, an elder must be blameless. He mustn't like be any of those um, characteristics. This is, sadly, the stuff that gets into papers, isn't it? Um, I was buying sandwiches on uh, Friday in a supermarket, and I couldn't help noticing the daily record. It's not my habit to read the daily record, but I did actually buy this particular one. As the front he page headline said this, Sex Row Rev on Fraud Charges. This is what the red papers love, isn't it? Front page news. An exclusive on how a female minister who stepped down on allegations of adultery is now being charged with fraudulently taking 18,500 in benefits. Oh no, you see, we need to be so careful as we appoint people to be the pastor, shepherd, elders of the flock. These are things that would disqualify an individual. And then Paul lists the positives. Uh, six positives in verse 8. These are the sort of things as you're praying and considering uh, these men, as we're looking in the future years to develop elders, these are sort of the characteristics we do want to see before considering him as an elder. Uh, verse 8, he must be hospitable. Someone who opens his home. Someone who you see welcoming new people. Who they're looking at after church. Who's new? Who can I, who can I welcome? Who can I greet? Who can I help uh, make them feel at home? Someone who loves what is good. 
That is that they're willing to put themselves out to do good to others. They're willing to put themselves out to be kind to others. They, they love what is good. They're self-controlled. Uh, you know, the, the, these are sensible people. They're discreet people. They have, they have common sense. That's the idea behind that uh, original word there. That they're upright. Here are principled people. Fair people. People who are, are righteous in their dealings. We're looking for holy men. Uh, a holy man is someone who's committed to God and his word. There's a genuine piety there. There's a genuine love for Christ and his gospel. It's evident. And we're looking for men who are disciplined. Men who can control their desires and their appetites. In, in Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight, it says this, Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. And it's a powerful image, isn't it? A man who lacks, lacks self-control is as good as living in a city without walls. They are uh, in danger of being uh, overwhelmed by any sort of spiritual attack. Easy prey. Now, elders must be godly. It's crucial. Because elders lead by example. By and large, each of us in our Christian walk, as we have worked out what does it mean to be a Christian, what does it mean to be a, 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 a real disciple, we read our, our Bibles, and what's the other thing we read? We look to the leaders, don't we? We look to see how our leaders act and behave as, as, as a model of, of this truth worked out. And so it's so crucial that we have elders who exemplify these godly characteristics because they set the tone of what discipleship is for the fellowship. Whatever the leadership is, the congregation will become. It's true of family life, isn't it? Whatever sort of relationship the husband and wife will have and uh, the way they relate to, to each other will set the tone for how the children relate will set the tone of the household, and it is exactly the same with churches. Elders must be godly because elders lead by example. Last point. We need to appoint elders because they're going to secure the gospel for a city, and we need the sort of men who are godly, and, and lastly, we need the sort of men who have a, a grip on God's truth. Godly and a grip on God's truth. Do you hear it's an echo of 1 verse 1 in Titus? Uh, a, a knowledge that accords with godliness. We need men who have both of these things. Godliness and a grip on God's truth. He must hold, look at verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. We need to look for men who know their Bibles. That should be obvious, shouldn't it? We need to know, see, men who, who read their Bibles, have been reading their Bibles for years, who know the content of their Bibles, who have a good grasp of um, the gospel, who are clear what the gospel is. You could say to them, tell me in 60 seconds or less, what is the gospel? And they could tell you right there and then. They could take you to the Word and say, here's the gospel. Because they, they, they've got a grip on the gospel. 
They're holding firm to the gospel. The Bible is the basis for their lives. The Bible is the basis for their daily lives. As they walk with Christ, they're reading God's word. They're studying God's word. They're applying God's word in their lives. They hold firmly to the trustworthy message as, as, as it has been taught. They're faithful to the apostolic message. And why is that so important, that they have a grip on God's truth? Well, because the essential task of an elder is laid out there in verse 9. So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is the chief task of the elder, the pastor, the shepherd in a church. He teaches God's word. How do you know when you're with an elder or a prospective elder? Well, it won't take too long before they're talking about God's word with you. It won't take too long before they're opening the Bible and showing you stuff from the Bible and reminding you of God's truth and reminding you of the gospel because that's the essential task of an elder shepherd pastor. They teach God's words. And it says here that all elders are to be engaged in this task. Now, some will be pulpit preachers, but others will simply do this in one-to-one conversations or small groups. It's not required that every man is able to preach up front in front of a, a congregation, but it is required that each elder is able to, at the very least, open the word with another individual. And do you notice that this teaching ministry has two voices? One voice is to gather and feed the sheep, and the other voice is to scatter wolves. Oh, this is so vital. This is so vital if we're going to keep the gospel at Charlotte Chapel. This is so vital if we're going to be engaged in gospel advance in this city. We need men who are willing to positively teach and edify and exhort the congregation from God's word, to gather the flock, to feed the flock, all the good stuff in his word, and also to be able to have that voice that is willing to scatter wolves that they're willing to refute those who oppose it. By and large, as elders, we're engaged in a, in a ministry of persuasion. Uh, we open the word, we teach from the word, we seek to persuade. But there, do come, there does come a time when you're dealing with somebody who continues to keep teaching what ought not to be taught, is believing what is contrary to the apostolic gospel, and despite our best attempts to convince them to, 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 to change and come back to the truth, they refuse. In fact, they're hardened and want to teach what is contrary. And at that point, elders must say, no, no. They must refute those who oppose it. There is a time when elders must say to people, Shut up. Leave this church. Your influence is toxic. It is time to go. Elders must do that. Now, who enjoys doing that? Well, if you enjoy doing that, you probably shouldn't be an elder. No one really enjoys this. This is, this is hard, especially in our relativistic culture. We basically want to affirm everything. Oh, yes, Druids are great, yes, Mormons are great, yes, yes, everything's great. We want to affirm everything. That's the culture we live in. You know, we hate being negative. Did you really have to mention that man's name earlier? Did you really have to say that? I know some people will probably be upset with me this morning that I mentioned a, a live issue. Do we really have to be negative? 
Yes, if we are to be faithful shepherds, we must not only positively commend the truth, but we have to negatively point out as a consequence what is error. So the sheep are protected and kept safe. It is a vital part of gospel ministry. False teaching ruins people's lives, ruins churches, and ultimately will send people to hell. And we will only really love people when we're willing to tell them the truth. All right. How are we going to see the gospel advance in the city? We need to make sure we appoint godly elders with a grip on God's truth. That's what Titus would teach us. And um, can I just say on this induction Sunday, what a joy it is to have Liam join the team. It's a joy to have Liam join the team because he is a man who has a godly life and has a firm grip on the truth. Elders can secure gospel ministry in cities, but they must be godly. They must have a grip on God's truth. And you know what? We, we, we need to mean business in the city of Edinburgh to go on the offensive with the gospel. We've lost too much ground. We need to go on the front foot. This church, amongst other churches, must, must be about the business of spreading the gospel, planting new congregations, and seeing the gospel advance. And you'll play a part in it. Uh, there are elder evaluation forms going out. Some people are, uh, are, do, uh, are writing out written forms. But we're asking you to pray for these men. It's so wonderful to have over 20 men willing to consider this task with us. And there are other brothers that have been identified by you in the congregation as potential elders who for whatever reason felt that they couldn't stand at this time. So we're thankful that at any given time that we have more potential elders than actual elders. We praise God for that. Would you pray for us in this process? Give your feedback, commendations, concerns. Let us know. This matters. And use God's word as the basis of the choices you're going to make. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the privilege of having your word. Father, we pray that we would uh, have that combination of a humble orthodoxy, a gracious grip on your truth, but that one would, that would have steel, that would be inflexible on the gospel. Oh Lord, we long to see your fame and your glory spread in this city. Oh Father, be pleased to uh, help us as we appoint elders in our congregation that we may have a united team that together we can commend this gospel to this city. That by your grace that you would use even us as, as individual members and us as a whole congregation to turn the tide in this city in partnership with other godly congregations in this town. And we seek your empowering Holy Spirit to do this in his precious name of Christ.
Amen.